on this episode of A Pot Upon a Hill. We're going to take you to the rest of the uh, period 1-1 notes, uh, kind of spanning the interactions between the Europeans and people of the New World. We're going to start with where worlds collide, and we'll take you all the way to 1607. All right, let's go. Here we go. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savages. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. All right, so um, speaking about the integration of Europe, Africa, Asia, all these different uh, cultures coming together in what we refer to as a new world, obviously from a European perspective, uh, we have to be addressing the fact that the first people to, to actually step foot in this new world were the Vikings from Scandinavia. So Greenland, obviously way up there in North America, uh, way back in the year uh, 1000 is when it really started. But because of the fact that they had no lasting impact, most of Europe is still ignorant to their exploration. So this new world that Columbus finds um, in North America becomes, from their perspective of, no one has been here before. All right, and keep in mind, Vikings are very much like nomadic. They're like, uh, you know, the pirates uh, that you probably have heard about in your in, in fantasies and stories and movies and whatnot. So they're not going to stay or settle for too long. And because of that, uh, you know, Europeans are going to be the ones to kind of describe and kind of recount what their experiences are. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing in many ways. One thing, because as Mr. Copeland is saying, it's very European-centric. So even the terms new world and old world, as we mentioned in the previous podcasts, implies some sort of hierarchy. It implies distinction. And we have to be very mindful as young historians who are the ones making those distinctions. But we have to attribute Christopher Columbus for being one of the major players in having us understand uh, a new side of the planet that we have not previously been um, accustomed to. And uh, as we mentioned before, a major contributor to the ability for this exploration to start was the Renaissance and its in influence on the expanding of technology, right? So the improvements in uh, instruments for navigation, not uh, as well as uh, the ships themselves, uh, they make a significant um, contribution to the ability for us to, um, excuse me, I shouldn't use us, Europeans to finally come to the new world. Um, so it, it's that revival of the classical learning and the idea that there's things out there to discover uh, that is important to keep in your mind that the Renaissance brought and therefore countries such as Spain and Portugal set out to uh, achieve those things. All right, so you've, you've heard this uh, narr narrative before. Christopher Columbus, um, you know, he's going to uh, get uh, a lot of funding from two patrons of Spain, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. After eight years of persuasion, he's going to want to convince them that he can find a new trade route to the East or China. And, and you guys know this. And, of course, as he got the funding after, you know, Queen Isabella kicked out all the Moors or Muslims uh, in her aggressive 
of Reconquista campaign. Uh, she felt there was uh, the timing was right, and uh, Christopher Columbus deserved the amount of funding to go in the name of Spain to find new trade routes. After all, if we can kick out the Muslims in Spain, maybe perhaps we can go out and Christianize the broader world as well. Yeah, it's a it's a two pronged effort. You know, not only is it for the spread of Christianity, they're doing their uh, good deed in that aspect, but it's also for the national pride, that idea of nationalism we spoke about in the previous podcast, and mercantilism influencing the idea of we must go out conquer for um, not just national pride, but also for financial conquest into increase our imports versus exports. So he hits uh, the new land or the Canary Islands in the New World September 6th. About a month or so later, October 12th, he's going to land in the Bahamas. Interesting to note, because when we think that he discovered America, we often think that he discovered, like, mainland, huge continent yeah, of Virginia North America or, or south of yeah. yeah. So these are the Caribbean islands. These are the areas in which he's going to kind of make a touch. Um, he's going to found a lot of new lands, and he's going to have three more subsequent journeys after the discovery of the Bahamas, and he's going to bring... Um, you know, a lot of other things other than what he promised. He did not bring gold, he, he brought very few spices, and he did not bring any kind of route to China. However, he did come back with reports of a new type of people he would later call Indians because mm-hmm. he thought, in fact, he was in a part of India that no one really discovered before. Yeah, so when we look back at Columbus and what his legacy is, I think it's important because this is one of the first um, historical figures we're going to talk about in depth is that we're not looking at people and categorizing them in one box, checking them off. Right. Is this a good person or is this a bad or evil person? That's not how history works. All right. What we need to be cognizant of is there is a lot of gray area and that the, a good person can accomplish terrible or evil things. And a quote-unquote bad person could become um, capable of doing some good things too and that there's a lot of gray there is no simple box to place people in so Columbus achieved a lot for Spain but when we look back there are things we have to look at and see the, the historians view him as accomplishing some ugly things as well when it came to the treatment of the Amerindians okay so not only for his nautical skills and the courage and daring to cross the high seas but the permanent link between America and Europe was established by Columbus, and he needs to deserve, he deserves credit for that. And the connections that America has to Europe is largely because of his quest. Uh, just by way of comparison, I mean, some of you probably know of Elon Musk and his, uh, you know, his private company and trying to go uh, make a voyage to Mars. Now, if he is successful in our lifetime, how would the history books write about him? Are you telling me that Elon Musk is a completely perfect person? He's a saint? You know, we're going to find and we're going to dig. He's going to be a tremendous amount of uh, uh, depth and dimension to this person for both good and bad. So as Mr. Copeland mentioned, you know, human beings have always been human beings, and we got to kind of be realistic with these expectations, especially in our current climate that's pretty partisan right now. So try to be as... Uh, you know, impartial as possible when examining these figures. Yeah, so it's it's critical to understand that although the good that uh, the, the connection between Europe and America established, the bad and the ugly looks at the fact that he assumed that when he died, he had created a new route to China or Asia, and the cruelty towards the American Indians, the mindset of We've, we discovered these savages and they need to be civilized is something that started with the very first reports that he sent back to Spain about these people. And that set up the precedent 
for the exploitation of them. And keep in mind, it's it, there is definitely underlying racism here, but it's mostly fueled based on ignorance. Imagine going back to that Elon Musk metaphor. We go to Mars and we somehow find some sort of organisms. We have no concept of any other organization, organism that is rational and has some sort of conscious other than us. So imagine meeting some type of creatures that are not humanoid. We would make observations and distinctions based on our ignorance of who they are How and their practices. from us instead of what they bring. Right. So I don't want you to think that Christopher Columbus came there big, bad, you know, big, bad, mean. But racism actually comes um, from ignorance. And that, I think that there's a more sinister component to that. Because if, that, if, if ignorance is what breeds racism, I mean, most of us can be ignorant, yes. including you know, ourselves. You know, like, yeah, we all need to acknowledge the right. things we don't know no, and right. be open to learning new things. When it's like, this is something I'm unfamiliar <laughs> with, therefore it's inferior, right. that's the dismissive type of racism we're talking about. Right, right. So what historians kind of call this interaction, catchphrase, the Columbian Exchange. And it's just basically a series of exchanges that happen as a result of contact between the Native Americans as well as Columbus. Now, this the exchange kind of continued way past Columbia's time on Earth, but there are some products that we're going to benefit from. It's not just a matter of a simple exchange of products. These products significantly altered both worlds for the better and for the worst. For your opinions, they were introduced to beans, corns, sweet and white potatoes, tomatoes, and tobacco. Yeah, my favorite example is how could you even imagine Italian food without tomatoes? Well, before the Colombian exchange, that was the reality. And, and that's something that I, it always baffles me, and I'm sure it baffles some of them, too. Uh, who are listening. And, and you know what? The fact that it, it, you know, tomatoes become a staple part of the Italian cuisine should tell you that these crops are going to be money makers. These people are going to capitalize on how good and tasty they are. Incredibly and it's going valuable. to have a significant yeah. impact on the complex mercantile uh, you know, system that is developing in Europe. So you have to understand how this is going to do it. You should also make sure you indicate uh, tobacco, which we will talk about later on in uh, other audio lectures. Correct. Of course, uh, it's not just products or actual physical objects. There's also uh, pathogens such as the old disease syphilis that was kind of eliminated uh, around the dark and middle ages of Europe, but it was now going to kind of re-hit uh, European society as a result of contact. And this is, of course, going to spark a lot of um, fear and ignorance uh, about the new world as well. Yeah, and speaking to uh, the new diseases is that you also have to think of the effect on the Amerindians. So I think it's been widely reported, most of you are probably aware of the fact that the Native American um, population was decimated. Up to 90% of these, um, the mortality rate of the American Indians was up to 90% because of these old world diseases. The immunity that they lacked and the lack of exposure decimated them. And so coming back to that racism, the, the um, European mindset is, oh, look at the weakness of this race when, without the understanding of the way genetics and immunity and biology work. So that instead of your natural inclination is to think, oh my God, they're not exposed to this, this is why. No, it's they're a weaker race, they're inferior, and we need to somehow um, address that issue. So as far as the other things, some, some of the things they're introduced to in terms of sugarcane, bluegrasses, pigs and horses are brought to the New World for the very first time. And then we have technological implementations of um, the wheel, iron, and guns. Weapons of that nature play a major role. But smallpox and measles are the two major killers of the American Indians in the New World. Why not guns? Well, think about this. Geography. The fact that natives can go deeper into the interior of South America or even North America, uh, a lot of these... 
explorers, particularly heavy ironclad in with military gear, couldn't probably keep up with them. So again, as Mr. Copeland said, diseases are going to be one, uh, the, the main contributing reason for the death of lots and lots and lots and lots of Native Americans. And we have to kind of be cognizant of that. Yeah, so when we think about the New World, we have to think about who are the people settling it. And initially, it's Spain and Portugal. They are the two major, uh, major nations driving the uh, exploration because of the way in which their European kingdoms are competing to claim territories. So um, some of them overlapped, and they're, they're intermingling in um, Central America and South America. But because both of these countries are Catholic, they take their appeals to the Pope to settle their disputes. All right? And that's where we have the line of demarcation, where the Pope dr draws a vertical line, north and south, straight through the New World. And this is something that separates and the line of demarcation and later the Treaty of Tordesillas can show us as historians two things. One, it's going to show the power of the Catholic Church, not only as a spiritual institution, but as a political institution that mm -hmm. is brokering an agreement between two Catholic nations vying for geopolitical control in the New World. And two, it implies superiority of a land in which we already, or Europeans already, assume they have authority and control over. You can see that there is no mention of anyone settling in these areas that they're kind of dividing up. So you can imagine these men uh, in Europe abstractly drawing on maps and boundaries with no regard of people living on them, that this is mine and this is yours. So this is the, the, the sinister yet subtle forms of superiority that we were mentioning and talking about. So please make note of line of demarcation and the Treaty of Tordesillas. And then similar to the way in which you learned last year about the way Africa was colonized and, and drawn up as well. Right. Um, now, when we, when we think about this too, we have to realize that the early on, our country in America, once uh, the American colonies, uh, colonies established by Britain, they're primarily occupied by Protestant um, religion. And the fear of Catholicism goes back to the political intermingling of the Pope and the authority that they had with the Catholic um, nations that made the Protestants constantly fear the um, Catholics being involved in our government. And that's something that up until even recent times has played into the fear of Catholics being a subversive element in our democracy. And it goes back to this uh, fear of the Pope uh, from back then. But right now, Catholic nations are a little ahead in the whole, game, the whole game of scrambling for territory. And because of the Treaty of Tordesillas that separates uh, South America into two distinct parts, Brazil and everything else, Spain is going to really take the lead in exploration. So we're going to kind of dive real quickly into Spanish exploration. Um, and most of these feats uh, are, are going to be accomplished by a group of men, as you know, as conquistadors. Uh, in, Sp in Spanish, that means conquerors, right? And they're going to be um, kind of going really deep into the territory of uh, South America and kind of carving up territories for their respective employers, one in which is Vasco Nunez de Balboa. He's going to be traveling across the Isthmus of Panama to the Pacific. So he's going to be the first explorer to kind of see the Pacific Ocean, and he's going to kind of um, be able to map out the Isthmus of Panama. You should highlight that because the United States will later have a key interest in that region in the 20th, earliest 20th century. Ferdinand Magellan is going to circumnavigate the world by undercutting and going below South America. In fact, there is a strait or a very small space of water between Antarctica and South America we will later call the Straits of Magellan. It's one of the most uh, brutal and capricious and dangerous areas in the world. 
Magellan is going to kind of do it. Of course, Magellan will die on this course, but he's going to be attributed to that under the Spanish flag. And Hernan Cortez, among the most uh, well-known conquistadors, he conquers the Aztecs in Mexico and the stories of their um, involvement with the Aztecs and the disease that contributed to helping their conquering are well known, which you remember from last year, of course. And Francisco Pizarro, uh, rounding out the four explorers we're going to talk about, conquers the Incas further south in Peru. And uh, Peru and Aztecs, very um, well-organized civilizations that was um, conquered in a large part because of the way in which the diseases played a major role in helping that um, assumption come to fruition. And so the men that we just mentioned, they're going to help secure Sp Spain's supremacy in the Americas. Um, and after their, their, you know, their interactions and, and, and planting flags in the ground, uh, they're going to increase their country's supply of gold by more than 500%. And as we mentioned earlier in the other audio lecture, uh, mercantilism is basically fueled by bullion or gold, gold and silver coins. So this is good for Spain. Now, in order to kind of keep order and structure and kind of keep the gold running, the people living in the New World, or the Spanish explorers living in the New World, are going to have to quickly create a society run under what we call the encomienda system. Now, we talk about this in American history because this will serve as the basis of the institution of slavery that we will later see in the Americas around mid-1600s. And what was the encomienda system? It's basically feudal. A king would divide lands in, in, in form of grants and give it to people living there. These people are going to be known as the peninsulares. These are native-born Spaniards. Mm -hmm. And on the land, of course, there's going to be the implicit notion that the, the natives, the uh, Native Americans living on that land, will also be part of their property. Natives on that property are, would have to farm or work or go into mines, and the Spanish masters in exchange had to, quote, care for their servants. So mm -hmm. we're beginning to see this exchange that, you know, based on documents, is going to be kind of described as very paternal, mm -hmm. paternalistic. And we have to understand, we have to go, uh, go seek through that type of paternalism. Because psychologically, the people, Catholic Spanish masters probably couldn't handle the fact that they were uh, uh, dominating over another human being. So they had to come up with some sort of way to do it nicely without hurting their little fragile egos. Yeah, or spinning the narrative to make them feel better about themselves so that people would read it differently. And, and part of what we spoke about already, that superiority combined with the um, devastation that the um, diseases, smallpox and measles played on the Native Americans, plays into the beginning of the African slave trade. Because of the d disease was killing so many of the American Indians, the Spanish began uh, searching for other means of labor. They needed to import the Africans in order to finish the labor that was demanded under this new encomienda system. So it's, since it's their um, desire excuse me, their requirement to farm this land under this encomienda system, they need the people to do the work. And for whatever reason, the um, slaves they were bringing over from Africa did not have the same issues with immunity that the uh, Native Americans did. Um, the Americans' system of social hierarchy plays a very different role, where we adopt this idea of one drop of color in your right. DNA establishes you as black. Right. You know what I mean? The... Um, they were more comfortable having a blend of different colors, and you would get your just desserts and property and assets depending on how white you were. Yeah. Where in American society, you're either black or white. Yes. There, it, it must be distinct and segregated. Someone who has a white parent and a black parent 
is determined to be black in our society, right. whereas in theirs, there would be a separate distinction compared to this is not to say that they were more progressive than white society, American society. Um, it's just a different way of how to internalize it's an and, 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 and in right, 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 a, a race. You're either pure or you're not considered for the American. But the point society. we have to make is that race becomes a defining characteristic in this new world. It's not as powerful or as defining in Europe because religion is. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, and even in Africa, a European to an African prior to this is not going to be defined chiefly on the basis of race. So a lot of historians have suggested that this is where our concept of racism uh, happens. Hmm. Even though a lot of people would say, "Well, what, we've always had slaves," but keep in mind the slaves were always, um, you know, uh, uh, contraband as a result of war that we've mentioned in the previous audio lectures. So even the way we're internalizing slavery or master-servant relationships is now uh, is beginning to shift. And it's not purely based on who they are as human beings. The inferiority implicated there is because we judge them based on what they are, not what they've done or how they were conquered. Correct. Okay, so when we move on, we want to look at uh, several areas of Spanish settlement in North America that eventually become states within our country. So Florida being the first, uh, settled, settled by in St. Augustine after several failed attempts. Uh, it's the oldest city in North America founded by Europeans. New Mexico, we have 1610 Santa Fe. 1680, there's harsh efforts to Christianize the Pueblo, and the, uh, there's a Pueblo revolt, which we will le- read about later on in the curriculum. And uh, then, of course, Texas, the Spanish settlements growing in response to the growing French presence around, along the Mississippi region, lower Mississippi region. That plays a major role in our annexation of Texas later on. And, of course, California being the last, with San Diego and San Francisco, obviously, the Spanish uh, wording of those cities is attributed to the Spanish uh, establishment establishment of their settlements there. Um, and this is a response to Russian exploration as they're coming from the so- uh, south from Alaska. But then in 1784, we have uh, the missionary settlements along the California coast, all because of a familiar term that we have here at Santhes, the Franciscan order. Okay, But those settlements play a major role later on in the Spanish influence of those territories that we have to Uh, be cognizant of as those uh, territories become states in our union. All right, so now we're going to change gears, and we kind of talked about a lot about how the the Spaniards kind of uh, had a head start in the race of the scramble for territory in the New World. And English, the English are going to uh, catch up, but they're going to have a slow start. So by 1497, there was evidence that the uh, that the English crown uh, was was throwing their weight around uh, the New World. Uh, they had a man named John Cabot, an Italian man, uh, you know, conscripted under their 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 flag, and he's going to explore the coast of Newfoundland, which is uh, really north north above Maine in the Canadian region. Um, there's some just, you know territorial claims in the New World, uh, but England is going to discontinue financing a lot of these explorations. Why? What, what well, was the big, what was the issue? Well, because they're, they're going to be preoccupied with other interests. For example, uh, Henry VIII is going to split from the Roman Catholic Church during this time, and it's going to lead to a series of religious conflicts between the English Catholics as well as the English Protestants. Um, we have a lot of uh, strife between the 1570s and 80s. Queen Elizabeth is going to employ privateers to attack Spanish merchant ships and challenge Spanish dominance of the high seas. Why start uh, you know, fighting with the Spanish in the, on the water and not quickly explore? Well, whoever has naval supremacy 
gets to have easy access to and back and forth from Europe to the New World. What, what is a privateer? I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> privateer is a very English and fancy and polite word for pirate. Oh, um, <laughs> it's funny how they don't call them pirates. The re- the, well, the, the privateer would be a private uh, sailor or captain. Uh, it would operate independently of the government, quote-unquote, in which they would ransack and steal a lot of uh, Spanish ships and in exchange for this uh, you know, stolen property, uh, England would look the other way and kind of shield them legally from mm-hmm. any type of retribution. So we most of the best English captains started off as privateers. And that's why the vocabulary that we use has to be evaluated because where did these words start from? They, was, they start from the perspective of the British spinning things to their advantage. One such pirate, I mean, excuse me, privateer, <laughs> was a man named Sir Francis Drake. He's going to make his career in attacking Spanish ships. He's going to confiscate, as we said, merchant goods. And he's going to even attack and raid Spanish settlements off the coast of Peru. So this is pretty much the reputation that England's getting uh, because they don't have enough capital. Uh, there's a lot of domestic issues happening in England to compete um, in, a col- in a colonizing effort on a large scale, so they're going to start by stealing. They're going to start by stealing uh, what the Spaniards and the Portuguese are going to have. You probably have heard about the colony of Roanoke in 1587, and you've also probably heard about it because it failed, or the, 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 the mysterious result of an entire colony kind of completely vanished after people went to go uh, save them. So, you know, th- these are pretty much the early uh, efforts of the English crown uh, to to dominate the New World, and it's not, it's not going well for them right now. Um, however, in 1588, there is going to be a change in the winds, pun intended, in which they're finally going to be able to uh, grab a very decisive victory over the Spanish Armada. Um, a lot of people uh, call it the Protestant winds, or they attribute the Protestant winds for the defeat of the Spain. Uh, they, they fought in the middle of a hurricane, according to the, 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 the saying, the legend, and uh, this, the Armada was destroyed off the coast of England. Um, now, be, be smart. Just because one decisive victory does not mean the entire Spanish fleet is gone. And actually, the Spanish navy is going to continue to hold dominance up until the, the 17th century. But this is the turning point. This is we're starting to see England now not become, you know, the privateers or the pirating uh, naval forces of the world. Mm-hmm. They're becoming a very big chief rival with They're not Spain. an annoyance anymore. Now they're right. among equals. Or right. As you said, a rival right. is face-to-face. Right on a level playing field. So we note the the defeat of Spanish Armada in 1588 as another turning point. This is the beginning where England is going to become the uh, the dominant force in European, as well as the global politics. All right, so that brings us also to this other nation that's been involved in North America exploration, which is the French, okay? So way back in 1524, you have the Italian explorer Giovanni de Verrazzano, who uh, is hired by the French. He explores the northeastern coast, the name may sound familiar to you because of the Verrazano Bridge that is named after him. He discovered the New York Harbor. And um, Jacques Cartier travels along the St. Lawrence River extensively, 1534 to 1542. So why are they so slow to establish claims in the New World? Again, internal religious conflict between Catholics and Protestants. This just should show you that religious tensions were high during this time. It's going to uh, impair the growth of these two respective countries. So the Catholic Church and their the um, political implications that they provide seem to be a slowing factor in many of these countries' 
issues trying to promote exploration. The Protestant Catholic rival plays into the settlement of our country for the next hundred or so years. Yeah, for England, the Protestants managed to uh, ha- get a hold of that country. But in mm. France, the opposite. Yes. The Catholics will eventually kind of reassert authority over the Huguenots in a series of skirmishes, one of which is the, one of the worst uh, events in history. It's called the St. Bartholomew Day's Massacre. Yep. So 1608 is when Samuel de Champlain establishes the first permanent settlement of the French, and that is in Quebec. And uh, that's why he is nicknamed the father of New France. And uh, Louis Joliet and uh, Jacques You're good at those. Marquette, Brother Vincent told me well, uh, explored the upper part of the Mississippi River. So this is where we have the Great Lakes region and the fur trapping and all those things that are a desire for Europe plays a major role in the settlement of the French. The French are mainly there for economic exploitation. Their settlements are not as permanent in the mindset compared to the British. Yeah, they're sparsely scattered throughout the uh, Canadian outposts and along the Mississippi River. Um, the Dutch, of course, are going to have, uh, they're going to join the scramble for the New World Territory, and they're going to um, kind of um, initiate it by an English explorer named Henry Hudson, another name you probably have heard of from the Hudson River around the New York area. He's going to be looking for a Western Passage to Asia. He finds New York instead, as well as a new territory called New Amsterdam, uh, which will be modern-day New York. Uh, the Dutch government will grant the Dutch West Indian Company a private corporation. You can think of it as a monopoly uh, in their area, and they're going to have the right to control this region for economic gain. If you think about it, you've got Manhattan, you've got the Hudson River, you've got Long Island. Those are prime, prime trading posts. And the Dutch are going to make a lot of money, not only with the surrounding resources, but also by um, charging tolls for any other type of sailors to come in here. So if any of you have lever- ever left uh, Manhattan before or, you know, or Long Island, any bridge, you know, tunnel, uh, it kind of has and retains some of that historical... Yeah, blame the Dutch. Uh, you can blame the Dutch for that. Um, so, well, um, yeah. no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. The... Um, this brings us fi- really to the final stage here is evaluating why we're bringing up all these different countries is because each of them, although they were treating the uh, Native Americans in a general sense, in a simplistic form, poorly, each of them had a different way in which they d- have done it. And although all Europeans view the American Indians as inferior uh, and that they need the, the reason why they're there to be exploited for either uh, economic gain or to provide a... Uh, convert to Christianity. Those are their major goals. Uh, Occasionally, to conquer other territories, they're used as military allies. But the major factor we need to think about is how do the Spanish, the French, and the British all treat them differently? The Spanish exploitation of the um, natives was primarily as laborers, okay? Those that were capable of surviving the contagion from the European diseases that we spoke about extensively, they're the ones that are the strong en- uh, that are strong enough to be implemented into the labor system, into that encomienda system, and, est- and help them um, economically gain from those territories. All right? So, um, however, there was some Spanish explorers and soldiers that had intermingled and intermarried, with quotes, uh, you could say, with the Native and even African women who were slaves. So you have many Spanish families emigrating from Europe to the New World to begin a new life in the Americas. So this intermingling is what established that five-layer 
uh, system of a rigid class system based primarily on race. And now please make, make sure you understand this. We cannot talk about race without also talking about property. Let's keep in mind that the Encomienda system was a feudalistic system of land distribution. Uh, that land implies servitude. That implies power. That implies ownership, not only of the property, but actual human beings that are property, and that will eventually lead to race. So we cannot talk about race in the New World, North America or South America, without also talking about property. So keep that in mind. The Ancomenian system is not a social hierarchy. It is the social hierarchy happens as a result of the land distribution. So just let just make that distinction very clear. So Here's another thing that's very interesting about history. We often like to say, well, that was history, and people back then, of course, are going to think that way, and they're naturally going to have superior thoughts. And how dare we judge these people based on our modern sensibilities? I agree with you 100%. However, there were figures in this period of time, this history, that also have identified the evils that we're talking yeah, about in terms of the subject. They didn't, there, there are some people that agree with it, and there are some that spoke out, and often they are dismissed because the history yeah, books sometimes sterilize to make the story fit the narrative. And let's be real. They're in the minority. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you really want to take it to another level, most great good leaders are going to be alone standing up for what is right. And they're going to be forgotten until hundreds and hundreds of years later. One such man is a man named Bartolome de la Casas. He's going to be, I think, one of the first humanitarian leaders in the New World. He's going to uh, be very, 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 very upset with the Encomienda system or what happens as a result of the Encomienda system and the Asiento system. And he's going to dissent from the way Europeans are generally treating Amerindians. Yeah, he stood up and really made, he wanted to make sure that the king and queen were aware of the treatment in, in the full extent of it, that they were getting the truth. Now, he is like Columbus a complicated and checkered person. In 1542, he himself owned slaves. In fact, some historians have suggested he's the one who suggested that the Spaniards use slaves instead of Native Americans because he argued they might be more strong or more capable of the harsh, rigorous, laborious efforts of the encomienda system. But over time, he slowly began to reject even African slavery as well, and he's going to persuade the king to institute the new laws of 1542. These laws would end Indian slavery, it would halt forced Indian labor, and it will begin to end the encomienda system, which kept Indians in feudal serfdom. But, of course, anyone trying to uh, change the status quo is going to go up against those that are benefiting from it. So the wealthy conservatives... Yeah, and when we say conservative or liberal in this context, we're, we're not talking about modern political terminology. The important thing is, throughout history, conservatives are defined as people that want to maintain the status quo. They're more reluctant to see change, whereas liberals tend to be ones that see things going on and maybe want to change them. So that's how we normally categorize these two things. So try not to apply your 2018 understanding of those words to history uh, when we use these, this terminology. And so, you know, Bartolomeo de la Casa is going to try to initiate this progressive, uh, you know, legal reform, and he's going to face some opposition through a man named Juan Inés de Sepulveda, also another man of the clergy. We forgot to mention that Bartolomeo de la Casa is a Dominican, mm. and these are members of the church. So they're going to debate over, uh, actually, Juan Inés de Sepulveda was a theologian, he wasn't a clergyman, but... 
I'm mincing words here. Uh, they're going to debate over the humanity of the Amerindians. Like, literally debate philosophically on whether or not Amerindians are, in fact, human beings or or, or, or actual Christian yes. or they, people of Christianity. Do they deserve the dignity that all human beings should be, deserve based on our uh, Christian knowledge of God's creation? Because if, they're, if they could be legally defined as subhuman, it becomes easier to just uh, to exploit them as well. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, uh, after a lot of back and forth, a lot of rationality, uh, Juan Hines de Sepulveda, uh, he actually, it becomes a bit of a tie in this debate, but, um, you know, as you will learn in our class, if you don't have a constant force to remind people in the establishment to change ways, people will forget. Yeah, and, and it yeah. kind of fades away this push to yeah, and and if if they had come to the terminology as hey Las Casas makes a good point this is how we should uh, govern ourselves going forward um, it would have changed the behavior but when you have two competing ideologies you go oh well there's a debate about it and you hear that even to this day it's like when all of a sudden you have two competing forces it's harder to get things done if everybody can come to a consensus it's like all right yeah this is the direction we should go in and and that's one of the ways we define the spanish treatment of the american indians is because of this uh, debate it almost legitimizes the treatment of the indians and the as subhuman and questioning their humanity as a whole the English are going to kind of also be treating uh, the Native Americans uh, poorly as well, but in different ways. So um, because a lot of them are going to settle chiefly in um, the North America, there's not going to be a lot of uh, large centralized empires that the Spaniards are going to see in Peru and in the deep jungles of the Amazon, right? Very so, Or in, in central, uh, central Mexico. Um, they're going to be scattered small tribes, and as a result, it's going to make the extraction of a large supply of labor very difficult. Um, so a lot of English colonists, particularly in New England, are going to be also coming with their families. So this also changes the dynamics of how to treat Native Americans. You got the Spaniards. There are a lot of single uh, military men, the conquistadors. They're soldiers. They're going out there. They don't even know if they might even come back. In some cases, it might be a suicide mission. Uh, Their interests and motivations are going to be differing than, uh, let's say, a man with uh, three daughters and a son. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be more of a tendency to cluster and settle along the coastline, the English, and they're going to... um, either, you know, they're going to interact when when it happens. So as a result of, you know, less mobility, uh, as a result of geography, there's going to be very, very few intermingling of the races. Yeah. It's going to be and less common. It's um, the, the distinction also is because of what are they, what's their motivation, right? They're not going to conquer, they're going to settle. Right. Some of them uh, looking for political... Uh, refuge, right? You know, religious refuge. Religious refuge. You right. know, so that whole dynamic is you're establishing, you know, the Puritans in the Northeast. You've got the Protestants um, and the English in Jamestown, Virginia. Right. It's a, a different yeah. mindset. If we're establishing a new right. place for us to live, right. we're not here to conquer. Right. And yeah. The Spaniards, the number one one was God. You know, God, glory, gold. You've heard this in your global history textbook. So they need they need to force the Amerindians to extract gold. Yeah. The English, not so much. And as a result, there's going to be less intermingling. That does not mean that there was no conflict. However, yeah. it's not. I think it was friendly, but there was not the the goal wasn't subjugation. Now collaboration relied chiefly on and was uh, based upon heavily level of survival. So if you had an English uh, colony or settlement that was in danger, like such as a Roanoke, or later on we'll discuss Jamestown, Mm. the the incidence of collaboration between the Europeans and the Amerindians are pretty high because you need them. Think about the Thanksgiving story. Exactly. So Plymouth Rock. 
you know, this, the legend has it that, the, you know, without their help, the natives' help the, would Plymouth have survived. The more established colonies are, the more robust they are, that's when we're going to start to see forced expulsion and the movement out west. But that's not going to happen until the 1700s. We'll talk about that later. So that brings us to the French, right? And how the French settlers, we briefly mentioned earlier, because they were primarily in uh, the Great Lakes region, up in the upper northeast, they still, uh, settled many small forts along these rivers and lakes. It was not families. It was um, not conquistadors and soldiers looking to conquer. They were looking to exploit the land. And if they happened to engage with the American Indians and they could show them a better way of fur trapping, they would engage. But it, they weren't there to deal with them as much as they were there to make money. So they had a strong interest in that fur trapping region. Uh, therefore, the St. Lawrence Valley, the Great Lakes, as I mentioned. Um, so these alliances, and sometimes they learned the languages and the dialects. They even married into some of these American Indian um, families. And this secured their position in the region, therefore allowing them to um, hunt. Also, they, they posed less of a threat uh, to the Amerindian tribes because there's less of them. They're scattered, and they had a, they, they're learning the language, obviously, to find out where the beavers are. But generally speaking, a lot of these Amerindian tribes are going to have a lot of alliances with these uh, small clusters of French settlers. Again, that's not to say there was never conflict. It's just, uh, it's just a little different. Yeah, so when we look at the Native American reaction to the Europeans, what's important to understand is Native American isn't one generic subtype. All right, we've got so much uh, diversity amongst the Native Americans. You know, when you look at the southwestern part of America, you have the southeast, the northeast, the northwest. Every region we've already gone through right. in the previous um, podcast has their distinct qualities and their distinct characteristics. So therefore, they didn't have a unified right. policy. It's not on a how monolith. They They're not a monolithic yeah. culture. Yeah, we're, we're, this isn't. This is how we will handle Europeans. No, right. each one dealt with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So the fear would be determined based on the presentation, as you mentioned. Right. Europeans in New England land, oh, families. All right, we shouldn't be fearful of them. In the southeast, in Central America, the conquering soldiers right. have more of an attention. And how much exposure, image. right? So if you're in the deep, you know, interior of the United States, you have no exposure of Europeans. You you might treat with them more, you know, innocently the first time you see them. Mm. Um, but the, the, that being said, the lack of unity also provided for the European exploitation because there wasn't a standard response, and they could play one another right. off. Could wedge, yeah. You, know, you could use. Uh, your relationship with one tribe to help you exploit and take over another and help them in, with their wars that were going on. So the tribes respond in a variety of different ways, but some of them are uh, waging rebellions against, pushing back. Some try assimilation, especially those engaged with the French. Um, but the exploitation of the Europeans um, become something that some tribes try to use as well. It's like if we could play the British off the French, maybe we can um, you know, make some money off of this or maybe harm both of them. Um, and it won't be until much later where some are even, even going to appeal to the European justice system, like utilizing uh, the, the Western way of how we approach justice through the laws and lawyers and due process. Uh, I'm talking specifically about the Cherokee tribe later on. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to try to use the, the, you know, the way that Europeans' rules of engagements yeah. are to benefit them. And of course... Um, there, a lot of them are not going to see a lot of... of, of oh, you're of a nation of laws, you right. say, right? Well, right. let's use those laws right. then. Let's see what is right and what is just. Right. But yet they don't always get that fair treatment that they're supposedly supposed to because we don't view them as citizens of our country based on that racist um, idea, ideology that kind of 
began many many of our treatment with and engagement with. And it's also very difficult, as Mr. Copeland said, they're not a monolithic culture. So when we have a treaty of X tribe, you know, how how is one to determine that is still X tribe? Yeah, the difference you know? between Cherokee and the Iroquois. Yeah, right, and you know, if it's a generational treaty, what happens if everyone who signed the treaty dies, mm. <laughs> and now the people that are arbitrating over the uh, or over the dispute of the treaty are now like third or second generation, and we're unaware, and of we're the unaware generation. of the context of the treaty, and and furthermore, who are writing these treaties? Right? In many cases, the signature of a lot of these Native Americans, if they didn't under, learn the language, would just be a mark or a symbol. So you have to understand that these treaties um, are not going to be airtight. They're going to be uh, heavily uh, debated, forgotten, disregarded, and it's going to be to the European the Europeans' benefit. Yeah, and if you just even think about it, you or I could show up at a tree, at, at a uh, the Cherokee tribe and explain to them that we are very important people within our culture, and here is a treaty for you. Right. But what type of authority do we have? Right. So in many times, these quote-unquote treaties that they right. had were... We're not authorized by no the, the nation. Real official nature to Right, that's a good point. It was too. a way to exploit the ignorance that the natives had of our system. All right, so I think that's where we'll lay, uh, come to an end here with uh, period one notes. Um, we will pick it up next with period two. Hope you enjoy the podcast.